times that spurred conversations too long for text. I'm Sina Iranica, joined by Nadim Jetta, Aman Charanya, and Ashwin Ragdit. Gents, happy to be with you all from afar. How are we doing at uh, 11.41 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Thursday, September the 5th? Football is back, baby. And it was horrible. What a horrible introduction back into football. We delayed the podcast for this wonderful game. That's, that's how you start a season off. I'm an hour yeah. behind, so... I well, Nadim is three hours behind, so he's he's yeah better than all of us. Forty-one here. I'm like, what are you gonna so, do after the podcast? Like, I gotta go to bed. Ashwin's gotta go to bed. What are you gonna do? He has a whole night ahead of him. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, man, go paint the town red or whatever the kids do these days. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that's how our podcast dies. So thank you so much for joining today's episode. Uh, we really appreciate having you all here today. Uh, I love it. But um, today's podcast is an interesting one. I think uh, it comes off the tail end of the climate change debate that was on CNN last night. Um, and just a topic that we've all been chatting about for, I don't know, what feels like really intensely for probably the last year, but something that we've all been aware of for since the early 2000s, shout out Al Gore. Um, but for this week, we're sort of introducing a new way we talk about subjects on the topic, and the overarching topic is climate change. Uh, we're going to run through the group roundtable style and have everyone share a topic specifically related to climate change. And we'll offer group discussion from there and so forth. So for the first topic within climate change, Nadim, you want to talk about personal responsibility versus corporate responsibility. Break it down for us. Absolutely. I chose this topic. It's, it's been something that's on my mind for a little while now. But especially, I think, in the last few weeks since the Amazon rainforest um, started burning and that story took off, uh, some of the discussions that happened you know, it's particularly on social media, it can be really frustrating sometimes. You see a lot of, for example, when the Amazon rainforest started burning, you saw a lot of people talking about beef production and how um, that has contributed to the fires that we're seeing. And I guess one thing that's frustrated me for a while is the discussion on framing issues of climate as issues of personal responsibility. You know, when the Amazon rainforest story was happening, people are saying you should eat less beef. For a long time, we've heard, um, you know, recycling uh, being emphasized, which which is important. But things like plastic straws and light bulbs, and these are all issues we also saw on CNN last night. And I think they really, for the most part, missed the broader issue of what we're dealing with here. So the New York Times did a study last year and found that about 100 companies contribute to 71% of the carbon we're putting into the atmosphere. That's globally. So when we talk about uh, going to net zero emissions and we talk about moving to renewable energy sources, that's really what we're talking about is those hundred companies, that big chunk of the emissions we're putting out into the air. And it's, it's just frustrating when you see that we're continually missing that conversation of holding those companies accountable, and even more so as uh, responsible citizens that we are, holding our lawmakers accountable for what they are doing or not doing as it relates to this issue. And when we frame these issues as solely issues of personal responsibility, you're really letting your lawmakers and these big corporations off the hook for doing what I think is the majority of the damage to uh, 
the climate. So, Nadim, do, do, do you think do you think that. it's a misinformation thing? Do you think it's like people who believe, you know, like when people who are railing against beef, do you think it's it's coming from a good place, or do you think it's it's just like them being improperly informed, or do you think it's like self validation? Like, what I I know you don't have to. I'm just like curious for your perspective on like why you think the conversation is so centered around personal responsibility when it's so obvious it shouldn't be. Yeah. So that's a good question. So I think it, it goes on multiple levels. So we can like point to like one specific thing, like the discussion around beef from like the last few weeks. And, you know, you can point to people on Twitter or sort of small scale um, I guess, groups of people that are pushing these debates. But I think the larger debate on these issues of personal responsibility and, you know, how much you recycle and how that affects the environment and everyone, you know, decreasing their own carbon footprint. I think for a long time that comes from establishment politicians and from these big companies, you know, these hundred companies that um, really contribute the major- the vast majority of our carbon emissions and I think the overall, that sort of um, overall, I'm trying to come up with the word here, but just general argument, I, I do think comes more from the forces at power, right? We, we as people, we get our information from the news, from schools, from the government. And when they're the ones telling us that, you know, hey, do this and it'll help fight climate change or help keep our environment cleaner. I really think that's where it starts is it's the 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 forces that can help uh, fight climate change are also the forces that help control sort of the information flow and where we get um, where, you know, we get our information on these things. And it's kind of a vicious cycle that we've been caught in. And I, you know, referencing the town hall last night, I think you saw two kind of representative answers for the problem I'm seeing. You saw Kamala Harris get asked about plastic straws and versus paper straws and whether we need to ban plastic straws, which to me is a total red herring and needs to be and should have been sort of rejected as the premise of the question. Instead, she kind of bit down hard and said, oh, we should ban plastic straws and we need to come up with better solutions than paper straws and did like a whole five minute answer on this issue. Whereas I think you saw later in the night, Elizabeth Warren got asked a similar question about light bulbs and she immediately rejected the premise and said, you know, these are all nice things to talk about. If we're talking about, you know, decreasing the size of landfills or just really small scale um, fighting like climate change on a personal level. And she said, if we want to get real about fighting this, we have to talk about holding corporations and our leaders responsible for the issue of climate change. And I think that is, um, you know, that's the answer we need to have going forward, not the first answer that we heard. And there are other answers throughout the night um, kind of related to this as well. But those are really the two that stuck out to me. Schwinn, Amon? Yeah, I, I think the other thing that we might be missing on a little bit is a lot of these decisions or these suggestions, especially on things like not eating beef or not using straws or like, you know, buying electric cars, which I know we're going to get into later or a- any sorts of things like that. 
a large percentage of the time, I think they come from people who've already made these decisions, who already have the capability to make these decisions, who suddenly think that this is how the rest of the world should be doing this thing, right? So like, for example, for a lot of people who don't eat beef or who don't have to worry about access to affordable food or things like that, sure, like switching away from beef is not a difficult thing to do at all. But if you're someone, you know, who's uh, primarily surviving on like a lot of fast food meals or a lot of takeout or a lot of like frozen foods or things like that. Like it's not as easy to switch away from something like beef, right? And that's not a decision you can just make overnight, right? So like, I, you know, Nadine made a good point that a lot of times the government or large corporations are pushing these narratives and they push these narratives because a small percentage of people have been able to make different decisions. And suddenly now it's like the accepted fact that everyone should make these decisions, right? And, and I think we've talked about this, like, especially with electric cars, like, you know, I, I'm with you guys that I think all of us should be driving electric cars at some point. But the fact right now is that a lot of them are still a little expensive and not affordable for people. But like the minute they became available for a small subset of population, suddenly like the norm was like, oh, you don't own an electric car. Like, how are you helping the environment? Well, like it's easy for you to, to like call out these personal responsibility decisions as soon as they become available or like easy for you to do. Right. And like, I don't think that's necessarily fair for like us to be pushing down on people once we're able to make these decisions. Um, I, I think like the most simple example is that the minute one person decides that they're ready to use a, uh, a use a reusable water bottle, the next thing they do is they start like coming after people who aren't using them. And it's like, you just decided this like yesterday, like how are you <laughs> gonna come and like hold us all accountable? Like you've just made this decision and suddenly you're like, how is everyone not doing this? I'm like, relax, like you've been at it for 24 hours. Like it's it's not that big a deal, you know? I, and I think part of the problem there is it it's almost like us having these smaller infighting within the larger debate detracts from the ability to like really rally a larger movement and move towards like Nadim said earlier pressuring these energy multi-billion dollar energy corporations that are contributing to 71 percent of all emissions so i think there is definitely like a it's frustrating and, and it begs the question i think how do we continue to to shift the the topic because because and i think aman this is and this is something you talk about a lot is like making the conversation equitable in a way and i and i think unfortunately when we end up in these personal responsibility conversations it just sounds like another elitist talking down to the non-elites and i think i don't know it 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 just makes for it makes for a less strong movement towards like what the overall action should be um so i don't know schwinn do you have any thoughts on this our, sorry, Schwinn, before you step in, like our sweeping declarations of personal responsibility are also not intersectional at all, right? Even if someone can afford to make these changes, it doesn't mean they're capable of making these changes, right? When we push like this this straw movement, right, where like nobody uses straws anymore, there are a lot of people in this country who have to use straws or who need to use straws, and yeah. that's okay, right? But the minute you like destroy them, you're like, oh, no one should be using straws. You're completely erasing identities and people who in other ways have been contributing to climate like uh, like reduction in climate change mitigation, but suddenly you're like, no, straws is the path forward. And like, you're completely erasing all the work other people have done. It's, it's also just like a waste of time, right? If we know where 75% of the emissions are coming from and they're not coming from straws. So 
it's like those kind of it's just, it, you're right absolutely that it's it's not a it's not a equitable conversation but it's also like a waste of time like a lot so well actually so this is the funny thing is like i want to indulge the straw conversation for a moment uh, <laughs> oh, God. um but i remember so this is a report i'll have to go back and find it uh because I, I just remembered it but it was uh someone was talking about the metal straws that i, I want to say san francisco but because it seems like a san francisco thing to do but it might have been a different city but they were talking about how well because they Everything seem like the, the crazy people who would radically overhaul their straw system anyways <laughs> um but a lot of these restaurants were buying these metal straws for the purpose that they're reusable but the problem that they had was that the people that would use these straws would just take them home which as a result the restaurants have to buy more straws and those metal straws are bad for the environment to make and so i mean here in theory is a fantastic solution right reusable straws you can clean them the water waste is much more uh, minimal compared to you know the overall overhead to make plastic straws all that other stuff but again in theory versus in practice people really don't know how the implementation is going to go out they don't know how they should react to these new things so you know people take the straws home and so we sure we can talk about straws but no matter how good of a solution we have there it's not going to be perfect and we still have to figure out sort of the the factors that go into it and like how we deal with it yeah i guess i guess there's all like i i still want to like i still think we need to talk like a lot more about the broader issues so like one big thing that like they talked about some last night but you know, if we're talking about this in the context of the upcoming election is come like general election when it's one Democrat versus one Republican, like the re-entering the Paris Climate Accord should absolutely be like, absolutely. at the top of everyone's mind, right? That is not just hold like raising, it's, it's raising standards, um, setting goals on renewable energy. It doesn't go far enough for sure. That's not the end of it. But that is like absolutely like a first step we should hold our leaders accountable for. And like, I really hope like, you know, this time next year when we're in the full psychoness of like the general election, that that's something we're hearing from our Democratic candidate like every day is like this guy, you know, this party is in the pockets of the giant companies that are causing all this damage to our climate. And we want to, you know, enter the biggest agreement in the history of the globe to help start fight to fight and, and it's joe biden so, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's 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 uh let's uh let's just just not, not plug that. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 i think uh, yeah yeah i think and so i think when we talk about climate change an aspect that we can't lose focus on while it, it should not be the primary reason why we talk about climate change, I think is just as important is security threats. And Ashwin, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this, and I think some of your time in, in D.C. And, and you may be able to shed some interesting insight, but just share with us and, and the audience as to like how big of a security threat climate change actually is, because it's something that the Pentagon and the State Department have been saying for years now. But ironically enough, it's been... I think under, you know, like valued with the severity of what they've been saying. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where when we talk about climate change, our first thought is, you know, how does it affect us? How does it affect our communities? How are we going to see it from our perspective? But there's a whole world out there that I think we sometimes forget. 
Um, and when we see the polar bears on the ice or the walruses jumping off the cliff, you know, we, we sort of think about it for a second, but don't really put it in perspective. And the biggest thing I see for climate change is how it, you know, affects our not only our foreign politics, but also our domestic politics in a way, because what it does is change the way we view food and sort of government issues that arise with natural disasters. Um, I think the, the best example is if you look at the flooding about a month, two months ago in the Midwest, and they had an immense amount of rain that is normally not expected, and the Missouri River overflowed. And I believe it was 20 levees that failed completely. And it led to a bunch of farmland just being lost and going to be covered with mud that shouldn't be there. And so this is thousands of acres of land that we depend on for our agriculture that has just been lost because of rain that shouldn't be happening to those proportions. And on top of that, just the lack of infrastructure that uh, our government refuses to sort of look at for a variety of reasons, um, I guess, Quick aside, I mean, we're kind of doing it again with the, the Mexico wall, right? We're just we're shelving projects that we need to build a damn wall. But that that's a different topic. And, I mean, that's from, that's from our perspective. Dorian also is a weird one because um, it just stopped over the Bahamas. And that shouldn't be happening. I mean, that's just not a normal occurrence for hurricanes. I mean, it was, the... it, it like, it, it stayed over the Bahamas for a day and a half, right? Like, I mean, that's not, like hovered, that's not, right? it stopped. Yeah, it, it stopped. stopped. No, no, it like hovered. You, I mean, yeah, for, it was go, moving at one mile an hour. And that's not supposed to happen. I mean, if it moves yeah, at like, you know, 15, wrong. 20 miles an hour, fine. Because, you know, it hits a landmass. The, here's the weather nerd in me coming up. But it hits the landmass and it's supposed to slow down. But to go to one mile an hour and maintain its strength and then continue on, that shouldn't be happening. Like Aman, I mean, if you if you sorry Ashwin, like if you look at screenshot or like a, a radar like timeline of Dorian, it almost yeah. looks like someone paused it once it hits the Bahamas because it literally it, it doesn't even move a blip on the map for a day and a half. It was like for twenty four twenty four to thirty six hours that storm and everyone in the Bahamas we're experiencing the wrath and it just was not making any progress forward. And, and it's not just any hurricane, right? I mean, just imagine if Katrina stopped over New Orleans for 24 hours. Yeah. And the Bahamas itself, you know, island, island nation. That's, that's devastating. And so these are things that we have to be mindful of going forward. Um, and that's, I mean, this is from our perspective, things that affect us, but let's take example like Indonesia. Right, Indonesia is one of the larger Muslim populations in the world, if not the largest. Right, it is the largest. The yeah. largest, volume-wise, yeah. They're not the most politically stable region in the world, if I, to be quite honest. Um, and uh, I don't think you have to mince words here, Ashwin. I think I think we've we've said way worse, and we will we, say we, way if we, if we get so. listeners from there, I'm not trying to. I mean, I don't think we're going to get take it a out uh, visit Indonesia sponsor. So I think you can definitely like speak your fair. mind okay, fair. freely about about that. Point being is, I mean, we saw with the 2004 tsunami, their response to that disaster just wasn't enough, and so they had to depend on foreign aid. Um, I, I'm pretty sure they had some social issues going on to there. It's a little bit too small to truly understand the, the scope of that. But if that happened back then, and we have some sort of Dorian-sized disaster happening there now, what are we going to expect? And 
you know, 20, 30 years from now, when water levels rise even more, we have to take into account their situation when these disasters happen. And I think that's the part of climate change that we often overlook. Um, let's take a look at Africa, right? The, the gap between the Sahara Desert and the more tropical regions down south is growing smaller by the day. The Sahel is moving further, f- further south. It's becoming more desert. And so that gap that they naturally have between the desert and the more arid re- and, and the more fertile regions, sorry. I mean, when you start to talk about food security, you can pretty much throw all sort of social norms and I guess laws out of the way because people are going to do what it takes to get their food. And especially in the less developed world, that will have an impact on how we view our policies on foreign aid and, and how we have to treat them with as a security threat. And so I guess this is just the kind of thing that we, we tend to overlook it because it's something that the Pentagon and the state department takes care of and it's out of sight, out of mind for us. I don't know if they take care of it. So, yeah. So no, no, but I, it, it's, would, it's, just... it's the thing that we, we expect them to sort of handle, right? We don't, uh... I also yeah, push so back on is, that. Like, I, I, one, yeah. one point I wanted to add that I think, Ashwin, you said, like, we expect them to take care of it. One, I think, underrated, I guess, I don't want to say scandal, but one underrated uh, sort of uh, phenomena over the last four years of Donald Trump that's happened is sort of the deterioration of the State Department. And I think that's not something that gets talked about enough. Um, so, like, I, I have I know people who work have worked there or like um, are in news and just from reading a lot, there's it's really a fundamentally change as an institution over the last four years. And what I think is probably a bad way. Um, diplomacy isn't a big emphasis in this administration. And it, when you're talking about assisting countries that are affected by climate change or. Um, putting pressure on countries like China that are just as large, if not larger emitters of carbon than the United States, that a lot of that is going to be diplomatic legwork that has to be done. And the State Department, like fundamentally, just isn't doing much right now. There are like uh, positions that aren't staffed. There are people there who are like just sitting around not doing anything because that's not a focus of this administration. So I think that's like an important point. But like moving forward, especially into 2020, uh, pressuring these candidates and really talking about how the State Department, you know, re- really needs to be reinvigorated and refocused on fighting climate change is going to be a big part. Of, um, and it's something I hope that we talk about, particularly amongst Democrat and Democratic candidates, you know, who's going to really make that a priority and really refocus their diplomatic efforts on fighting climate change, because I haven't heard of anything like that yet. And that's just as important as any topic that they can talk about up there. Well, the good news is that um, this president's State Department won't be handling the future crises. Uh, the bad news is what we're not doing now is going to affect us in 30 or 40 years. So, I mean, yeah, but it's not it's like a, it's a pick your poison. Like if we go back to Barack Obama's State Department, I don't think that gets it done either. Like, I don't think what, so like either. if we're if we're if we elect a, like a, you know, a Democratic president, they appoint a really dynamic secretary of state they still need to have a plan and a focus that you know what the state department like one of our biggest goals is going to be helping places that are adversely affected by climate change and um, working with other polluters to help bring down carbon emissions globally 
And like, I think really holding our candidates to that kind of um, goal and aspiration, goals and aspirations is going to be important. I think the other thing also is, and I didn't really touch on it too much, is the refugee aspect. Because that's definitely going to come up, especially if you, we're talking about loss of land and desertification uh, of some of these African areas. Uh, the the refugee, uh, I think the one that I saw was uh, Bangladesh is at most at risk of increasing uh, water levels. And if they do, I mean, the most natural place for them to go is to India. And I mean, I I was in Calcutta on my summer, on my trip earlier this year, and there's already high tensions because of the Muslim population that's come in. If you're talking about millions of people who are displaced and need to go somewhere, I mean, that's good. I mean, oh, yeah. if we thought Kashmir was bad, this, that, that would be a disaster. Oh, yeah. Well, Africa as a continent is going to be some of the first people that are affected by this. Um, just like the weather patterns, the they're like like so much of Africa, like we don't realize this here because everything we get is you know, processed and it's from another state, another country. You know, we get everything shipped here, but in places like Africa, um, you know, you're, you're somewhere, my family's from Tanzania, I visited Morocco, and you'll hear people say, well, you know, everything you're eating right now in this, in this city was grown within 50 miles of where you're sitting. And if uh, that kind of, agri- like, if agriculture gets affected, things like that, um, you know, Africa is really going to be um, I mean, affected by climate change. Like- and it's good. Go for it, Tina. Like, I mean, South Africa, like, um, uh, I'm blanking on the capital of South Africa. Um, Johannesburg. Johannesburg was, I think, was it like a week away from running out of water? Legitimately? It was. Yeah. And it's not the only city that's had that issue. Right? Uh, It was Brisbane. Brisbane in Australia has had that issue. Uh, I mean, we've had our own issues in, in Flint. Granted, they were artificial, but like, you know, a lot of this is going to come back around towards like, what if Flint had had a water shortage and then they poisoned it? You know what I mean? Like, what they if were the country... artificial in the sense that they weren't climate related. Yeah, they weren't climate. Were yeah, they weren't climate related. Like, but you know, the, these all things like this get exacerbated when we already have an additional water shortage, right? You talk and, about like and, and they we, weren't we look climate at related, but you know, we we fracked around there and that. Yeah, we do, forward. and we talk about well, that's Kashmir specifically and, like, related people... to Flint. Like, I think it's important to distinguish Flint from like. Than what's occurred naturally in Brisbane and, and Johannesburg. Sure. My point, my point is just that even when you have things that aren't climate related, they are exacerbated when you have climate related issues, right? Yes. Like Ashwin brought up Kashmir, and we talk about like either geopolitical issues or refugee crises in Kashmir. I feel like no one remembers that the reason Kashmir was such a hotly debated topic is because that was the source of a lot of the water that is coming through India and Pakistan. They have fought. In India and Pakistan, they refer to them as water wars because they fought over water supply. I mean, this is not some geopolitical strategy. They're not fighting over the land because they want the control of the land just to have it. They want the water. The water that comes through Kashmir into both India and Pakistan is very strategic. And India has gone about building tons and tons of dams, huge dams, in their country to try and control water distribution and to control who and, and when people are getting their water. So like all of these things become exacerbated when you have things like water shortages and additional people. Like it's not just an issue that's in and of itself an issue. It's one that's caused by like outside factors. And then it's also influenced by like additional third party factors. Oh yeah. Well you think like Iraq and Afghanistan are going to get any more stable if they're having water shortages, which is absolutely going to happen. Those are some of the hottest 
areas in the world like, like those like... are 100 percent 100 things that they fight over like right now the gulf like one of the big gulfs like greatest challenges going forward is trying to find out like what is the water supply going to look like for the next 50 100 years right can we Absolutely. can we actually like desalinate our water like is that a feasibility right sure that's the thing we're talking about right now like 50 to 100 years but if tomorrow you cut the water supply in half I bet you that there's going to be less conversation and more. Well, why don't we just take the water from someone? Mm-hmm. I'm mean, like, that's not at all and, surprising. But, and, and then, but, go ahead. And, and then you know what happens that Joe Biden gets elected president and decides we're going to deploy our military, <laughs> as if that helps anything. That is, you like we're laughing, but like that is 110 percent going to be the U.S. response to this. Let's just throw our military there. We'll I just love how water. you're expecting Joe Biden to be president. <laughs> I don't care who's president. Someone uh, besides Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, they're going to deploy the military to protect water. That's I mean, I, but I don't even think we have to look very far. And I Ron think Paul people, God, Ron man. Paul would deploy every man, woman, and child <laughs> in the United States to defend the water interests in the Gulf. Um, we don't have to look too far because if y'all remember, it was either when we were in high school or middle school, we had that insane middle drought school. in yeah, Georgia. Middle school. And I don't know if y'all remember, but at the time, there were states like Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, um, and and I want to say Mississippi were all arguing over water distribution and water rights. And like that is at home within our own borders. And I think to think about a world in which like do states deploy national guard troops to like the border to protect water you know like i, I think like it sounds crazy to think about but uh, to amon's point if we suddenly cut the water in half in this country even how does that affect how states go about it how do we determine who gets water how do we determine like water as a as a resource i, I think it, it yes foreign policy wise it is huge but i think we we kind of tend to think about like i think there is there is an element of this that maybe that's partly why we don't feel like it's so real because we're a bit more immune to the you know after effects of climate change so far but sooner or later it's going to hit and when it hits i don't i hope we have someone in charge who is prepared for it or i hope we are proactively electing someone to proactively take care of it but anyways i think this and kind of Go ahead, Amon. People want to privatize water. That's the solution. Let's privatize water distribution and and like water in general as a natural let's, resource. Let's 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 go fight every single that's, one of them. That's the dumbest decision or dumbest idea <laughs> that I've ever heard. I've heard a lot of dumb ideas in my life, and privatizing water might be among the top. Like your solution now is that because we're gonna have a water shortage, let's sell it so we can let the poor people like get dehydrated first. Yeah, that's, that's literally the solution plan for everything have you guys seen the movie the lorax no the lorax. wasn't that it was one of those dr seuss yeah there's one about the dr seuss movie but in that world the the whoever is like the most powerful corporate guy sells canned air well it's like um it's like mad max the guy controls the water and yeah controls, controls the, the water yeah man if we're moving into a mad max world oh jeez. yeah I don't, I don't know I don't... how people think we're not okay, moving I into mad max a... world we're already, <laughs> we're already like 60 percent of the way there who's who would be our tom hardy me i'm not participating in this conversation <laughs> <laughs> okay well i think this takes us into uh maybe not solutions but just different 
things that are happening that maybe can happen on a more national scale, international scale, to help combat some of the climate change. And, and goes back to Nadim's earlier point about, um, you know, corporate or like an industry responsibility on the issue. And uh, we'll be right back with those topics after this break. So that brings us into our next topic. And this is one that I'm going to talk a little bit about, and it's about electric cars. And this idea, this subtopic rather, stemmed from Porsche uh, announcing their latest uh, all-electric vehicle, the Porsche Taycan. Taycan? Taycan. Whichever one, how you say it. Germans <laughs> probably say it one way. The Brits probably say it another way. The Americans say it another way. Yeah, we probably screw it up. Yeah, exactly. Um, but what's really interesting about this car, and it sparked a bit of a debate within our own group, is one, it the price point is very inaccessible to the mass population. Um, and number two is sort of like how the car industry is approaching electric cars. And I think this is something that was really fascinating to look into and just wanted to share a couple of points with you guys. So the industry analysis is sort of at the consensus where the electric car market is at a tipping point. And while they're out of price range right now, within the next few years, we'll start to see battery powered cars become cheaper upfront than combustion powered vehicles. And I think we kind of have to tip, our hat to the car companies who are going after this and investing this and particularly Volkswagen. And I'll touch on that in a second because they are in a way predicting a market will be there for them. And I know this gets into a bit of a contentious topic between Amon and I about uh, economics versus ethics when it comes to climate change. Surprise. I have an issue with ethics, (laughs) but a, uh, a, a couple key points. So, Last year, there were about 95 million cars sold and only 1.3 million were electric. However, companies have been pledging by the billions dollars to convert their entire vehicle lineups to all electric cars. The most notable one is Volkswagen. Uh, For those of you that are not familiar, the German group also owns Porsche, Bugatti, Skoda, Lamborghini, and Seat. Um, and they have invested 30 billion euros over the which is about 34 billion US dollars over the next five years to make an electric or hybrid version of every single vehicle in its lineup. And it plans to launch 70 new electric models by 2028. And by the end of 2030, it wants four out of every 10 cars it sells to be electric. I think that is mind-boggling and you can say what you want to say about volkswagen having their diesel controversy beforehand but there's a couple key reasons as to why a company would invest 30 billion dollars over five years uh number one the biggest thing is that price of batteries is declining and it'll allow automakers to sell those electric vehicles for less than gasoline and diesel powered cars by as soon as 2022 by 2040 we're expected to see electric cars outsell gas and diesel vehicles And then in addition, apart from the United States, and this goes to what Nadine was saying earlier about why the Paris Climate Accords are so important, um, China and the European Union are two of the world's strictest um, 
regulators on auto manufacturers and wanting to reduce the CO2 emissions. Um, China is already the world's largest market for electric cars. And the government has implemented a system that requires car makers to make clean vehicles or purchase credits for the CO2 emissions their cars produce. So they have a carbon tax. Um, this, I think, I think we can talk about China and like a whole nother topic, but um, the economics bit, and then I'll open it up to the group is interesting because, so for one, from an industry perspective, um, the U.S. automakers have pledged $21 billion towards uh, electric vehicles, $21 billion in China, and $52 billion in Germany. Um, Volkswagen, with their vehicle fleet, so this includes Porsche, this includes Volkswagen, etc., um, they are, so they rely for 65% of their profit, they rely on selling 2 million Audis or Porsches to make up that bunch. Keep in mind, Volkswagen produces 10 million vehicles a year. So when we were talking about economics and ethics, I think for these car companies, their bread and butter and what pays for their innovation to be able to pass on this technology comes from their luxury cars. And it's not a question of if they're going to pass on the electric vehicle technology to their cheaper and more affordable cars. It's a question of when, because we see that tech applied from, you know, cars like the Porsche Cayenne, the Porsche 911 to the Volkswagen Golf or like to the Volkswagen Jetta. And like some of those tech features, those like things that were once out of reach for consumers are now within that more accessible price range. So I don't know. I, I think electric cars, while they are not, you know, the end all be all answer. They do cars do control or contribute about 15% of man-made carbon dioxide. Um, but I think it's actually kind of like, you know, it helps me feel a little bit more comfortable knowing that car companies as an industry are kind of telling Trump and his anti-climate thoughts to go fuck himself um, because they've, one committed all this money to it already. So they're not going to back out of that. Um, but number two, I think they all sort of see the future and uh, opinions aside on Elon Musk um, in March, he actually, <laughs> he was quoted saying our goal all along has been to try to get the rest of the car industry to go electric. And I think this opens up for petrol heads, at least pun intended on the name. Um, it opens up a really interesting market from what electric cars may be like. But I am very curious for all of your thoughts, especially Aman, um, on this subject. Because for those of you who may not know, Aman hates cars. I don't hate cars. <laughs> you hate okay? cars. I just think the world would be better off if we abolished them and Elon Musk while we're at this hospital. Let them unionize. That's what I'm saying. Let them unionize. Let who unionize? The workers. At Tesla? Yeah. Okay. Let's. Uh, yeah, okay. Tell me, Tesla yeah. doesn't let their workers hey, unionize. Hey, this was a big surprised? issue. Hold on. Yeah, this is a big issue. Anyway, I'm this, sorry. I'm sorry. Ashley, I'm off topic. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna reel it back in. We're gonna cars, reel it back into electric cars. I'm sorry. We're off topic. I'm on pie. Why don't you respond to Cena's whole speech? Yeah, I'll get back to the unionization of Tesla later. I'm not against electric cars by any means. I think they're a phenomenal option, and I'm glad we're making investments moving forward. Um. I just think the rhetoric and the culture around electric cars is far ahead of what is actually feasible and capable. And so we're left with this whole conversation where people are like, you should buy electric cars. Like this should be the next move. Like 
you know, seen, I know you said like cars make up what 15% of our carbon emissions or yeah. something like that. And like, I, I agree that that's terrible. And like, we should definitely work to mitigate that. And we do all of this. And then, you know, we turn around and we're like, so everyone should kind of switch to electric cars. But like, the fact is car companies, right? Yes, they're producing some cars that are at uh, affordable or reasonable price points, but not nearly enough to make a dent in that 15%, right? I mean, Agreed. that's like, Agreed. like, there's no way that with what we have right now, and like the number of years we've been producing these, like, Naveen made this point, I think earlier today, when he was like, there's just not enough cars on the market for people to be buying used cars yeah, that are agreed. electric and to make a dent in this, right? And so we're already jumping ahead of ourselves. We're like, well, people should be driving like electric cars. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, you know what? I've been I like I'm in Nashville right now. I've walked around Nashville today. I haven't seen one electric charging station. So who the hell is buying electric cars? Because it's not people working or like going to their jobs day to day. Right. I, I think and this is my guess and my hunch based on some of the things that we've been saying is that people who are buying electric cars are people who are buying Teslas, right? Or who are buying some of these high-end Porsche cars or things like that. And that's good for them. I'm glad that they're making the smart and conscious effort to like buy electric cars instead of, you know, $60,000, luxury sports cars or whatever the price point is of a luxury sports car or whatever. Um, I just don't think that that's something that as a kind of a country that we can like pivot to right away. And I, and I do think that uh, on some level, we're not really pushing um, a lot of our car companies or a lot of our manufacturers um, as hard as maybe we could be, right? A, a lot of them get uh, subsidies. Like, I mean, uh, General Motors got a huge bailout from the government, right? An enormous bailout. Um, and I think we could be making a much better effort at being targeted in some of our subsidies, our tax breaks, and our rhetoric around car companies to force them to make stronger and more drastic changes in some of their production, right? Like I get it that they're producing these cars, but like today every company or every like major car manufacturer has like one electric car to like how many of their gas like powered mm -hmm. cars still, mm -hmm. right? And, like and, and, and that's fine. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe someone comes back and says, Aman, it's just not feasible, right? I am like not willing to bet my life on it maybe, but I'm willing to bet a lot of money that these car companies have the capability and the feasibility to make investments into like reliable and sustainable, affordable electric cars. And they're not ready to because they don't think they can sell them. They don't think that consumers are ready to kind of like make these purchases. And so like they're going to continue just sending down gas cars or like petroleum cars until like it gets to the point where like if we buy one more, we're all going to die. And they're like, well, hey, I have an option for you. Why don't you buy my new affordable electric car? And like I get it. Like, sure, they're making an impact, but like if you could have made an impact 20 years earlier, like, am I really supposed to praise you for doing it at the like nth hour at the last moment? Does so, that make sense? No, no, well, it, and it does. And, I, and sorry, quick, two, two things. Number one, for ahead. context, Amon, Porsche reported that they already have 30,000 pre-orders on this $150,000 car. Oof. So that's $4.5 billion. If I did the math on Google math correctly. Um, yep. like thanks for admitting all, you didn't do it in your head. Yeah, no, I'm not going to fucking front that. Um, so $4.5 billion without even having released it to the public, they haven't pre-order money. Um, and then number two, this is something that's interesting is I found out today that, uh, Porsche on this car, uh, the charging capabilities are not, uh, compatible with the Tesla supercharging stations. And what I learned today is that all Tesla has made their supercharging stations and the tech behind them open source. 
for any other car company, if they so wish to do so, to be able to use that technology to like be able to make it compatible for their cars to charge at Tesla supercharger stops. But Porsche decided to not opt into that. So I think you are, I will, I definitely agree. A bigger conversation around this is infrastructure and how do we force like, and, and you have to tip Tesla's hat to them with the amount of money that they have invested in these supercharging stations and that like you aren't able to do a road trip from New York to Los Angeles entirely in one of their vehicles and be able to charge along the way, not at unreasonable distances. Like you can actually make a solid amount of time in between charges and it's, it's right there for you. So I think that's the only other point that I want to make that I think it is important. It's incredibly important that we hold car manufacturers accountable for building the infrastructure that will help facilitate the purchasing of electric vehicles in that sense. Well, and I think, so I guess uh, just to build on what you guys are talking about, we talk about like the, there's not, okay, there's not enough charging stations and sort of an infrastructure for everyone out there to have electric cars. We say like electric cars aren't affordable and they're not like a priority. Like, Cena, you read off the numbers, I think like for every one electric car that's sold out there, there's 95 non-electric yeah. cars that are sold. So the numbers are wild. I think at some point, like it, it's not, sure the company has responsibility and if the company cared about climate change and was moral they would take it upon themselves to do this i think we've learned that we don't like wait on companies to become moral and do the right thing no we abolish them (laughs) (laughs) well let's relax a little bit what we do is like the people who theoretically have the power to regulate companies to impose standards um to do x y and z that needs to be done to get to a world where we can have electric cars at a much higher percentage of the market and this infrastructure for people to um, be able to use them practically is to have our government pass laws to that effect and to hold companies accountable to their effect. Look, man, China's China's charging a CO2 tax. That's crazy. That's crazy. Who would have thought China would be up? Well, yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, it seems unlikely because obviously our government can't do anything right right now. <laughs> but why did why did cars become more efficient um, in terms of the fuel that they do use? It's because the government imposed standards on uh, fuel efficiency standards yep. for these companies. Yep. Why is there a seatbelt in every car? Because the government said you guys have to put a seatbelt in every car. They have to be safer. They have to you know be uh, they have to be able to do all these things. So. It, it really like going back to my original point at the beginning, like it really if there's going to be this mass push, it's not going to come from the companies. We can wait for the companies at the end of the day. They're in it for their shareholders, for their executives, for their employees. It, it's going to have to be from citizens holding their government accountable and electing leaders that will put that pressure on companies. I mean, that's just sort of my two cents. Ashwin. All right. Throwing it to you. I've got a little bit to talk about. Um, I think, first off, I think using Porsche as the benchmark is completely ludicrous because Porsche is like a completely different brand. And I think we're going to talk about personal responsibility and should they have open sourced their their battery tech? Maybe. But I mean, they're also a luxury brand and they're trying to protect their image and protect their brand. So they're obviously going to be... solely targeting the people who are paying the $150,000 and say, Hey, use our battery charging stations. 
mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you're elite and you're special. That's that's a completely different segment, I think. And I think we're looking more at the general view of how to get electric cars to society. And I mean, first off, I don't think any of us view this as like an overnight shift. I mean, it's going to take decades to get to the point where, you know, electric cars are an alternative and we have to accept that because first off, I think we're downplaying infrastructure a little bit because even if we were to go electric, there are, we have to replace gas stations with electric stations, right? That would be like one of the main things to do. Not only is that like destroying the gas industry, which we may or may not I'm be in opposed favor to. of. I mean, okay. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of down. But I mean, even it. like filling gas right now um, takes what? A couple of minutes. Charging yeah. a battery takes a good amount of time, no yep. matter how much you supercharge it. Like, and the infrastructure that goes into that, you need to develop that and test it and make sure that there's enough for everyone to go around. So I mean, that's going to take a long time. I uh, mean, my AirPods then, charge in like 30 minutes, so I'm not so sure what the big deal is here. Um, flex. <laughs> yeah, but wow. are, are you using them now? All right, relax. Get the <laughs> <laughs> um, and the other thing is, I... I I know we talk about companies saying maybe they should do this faster, but a battery tech car is completely different from a combustion engine car because the battery is so large and takes up the complete bottom of the car. It essentially becomes your entire weight structure for the car. There no longer needs to be an engine. So you have to sort of redesign entire cars, test them. And not to mention that our battery tech just isn't viable. I mean, it's getting cheaper it's getting more efficient, but it's still not, to the point where we can mass produce this at uh, a scale for everyone to use at a cost that is reasonable. Like we're getting there, but it's, it's just not good enough. And so like this, this is going to take time. And so I, I, like, I understand that we should be doing better because we can, you know, we are the innovators, but there's, there's so many other factors that go into this, not including the lobbyists that are just going to come for from the gas companies and be like, Hey, you can't stop doing this. And and, and abolish and, them too. Yeah. <laughs> and Ashwin, I agree. And I think I guess my my biggest takeaway from this is I feel like and maybe it's just because everything seems horrible and cynical at the moment, but the fact that the car industry has actually been putting their money where their mouth is is I think what is what makes me optimistic about the future of electric cars and the ability for us to get there quicker and make it affordable for the masses. Um, Because like, again, 19 billion by automakers in the United States, 21 billion by automakers in China and 52 billion in Germany, 30 billion of which is for one company. Like those are not numbers to scoff at. And I think we do have to give credit where it's due about, about things like this. And, and in a way it's like, this is one of the few optimistic things that I feel like when it comes to climate change. And I think the ability for um, an industry, again, ethics versus economics aside, like the fact that they've actually pledged that money and put it into research and are working towards the end goal of transitioning fleets to be all electric is pretty promising to me. Um, and at least it, it's, it gives me a little bit of hope. But again, I think there's a lot more that we can do. And one of those things um, is Amon's topic, and we will well, be with... Before, uh, before we switch, but one, one question I want to pose to you guys. End all, be all with electric cars, aren't they still a first world problem? 
in the sense of like this is only the, the electric cars that we're still talking about are still geared mainly towards the first world countries like the right? Porsches and the Teslas no just in general like common use consumer cars like how are you going to implement this in India like let's let, let's be honest how are they going how are you going to get the average person in India that is like driving a car first off to to get an electric car and have the infrastructure in place to sort of do that on a daily basis you I mean I feel them? like the, I feel I feel like the best case scenario but, for them is... Look, man, I was trying to transition into the next topic, and I think... I, no, no, I'm I think just saying, like, I... Perfect, no, I guess... I think... He, here, here's what I... I guess I would just say, like, okay, if the cars that people are driving now around the world are cars that were produced, you know, from 2000 to 2019, the last 20 years, then it'll take 20 years before that's ever a standard somewhere else 20 years of like significant production so i mean you're saying how would we do that in india well it would take people selling these cars in india for 20 years before that ever hey well modi modi wants to brand himself as this innovator so maybe he should just offer tax breaks for every uh all right let's let's slow your roll yeah i just just feel like regenerative sort of hybrids are just going to be more the future for like those countries which is still good i mean you're still saving a lot of emissions on that sense but i just think it's anyways that's it that's all i had all right all right guys we'll be back yeah, after we'll be this. back after this And so as we talk about electric cars and, and things that we can be doing and potential solutions and, and that not being the end-all, be-all, Aman, I am very intrigued to hear about high-speed trains. Please, uh, please take it away. I have so much to say about this topic, um, but I will tell you at least where this came from. So I've kind of in favor of high-speed rails. Um, I think it's just a really common-sense infrastructure investment that we haven't made yet. Uh, But where this really came from is um, Bernie Sanders released his climate plan, uh, I think, about two weeks ago now. Uh, And it's a huge, huge uh, trillions of dollars investments that talks a lot about uh, job creation and uh, uh, carbon dioxide uh, or or carbon reduction more generally, um, talking about, like, uh, de-investing from the military and things like that. And one of the big points of his plan is investing in high-speed rail, um, which I absolutely love. Um, I think it's absolutely fucking ludicrous that we are the wealthiest country in the history of the world um, and we haven't invested in high-speed rail yet. And I know someone's going to come and say that, oh, well, we have Amtrak and they have some high-speed rails, but I, that's not really the infrastructure that I'm talking about here. Uh, and there's much better technology out there and much advanced. Please, uh, um, please, please give us the numbers because the numbers are what are, I, I, are pretty, yeah, pretty baffling. And I think, I think the easiest thing for me to compare this to um, is Japan's rail system. Um, and, and the reason people are shy about comparing it to the Japanese system uh, is Japan is obviously a much smaller country. And the first argument that, like, I'm going to call them anti-high-speed rail people, um, the first argument that they have is that, uh, well, every country that's been kind of implemented, in, um, it's not scalable to the United States. We're much larger. We have different population densities. Uh, like, our, our cities are very far apart. And some other bullshit that they talk about about why they don't want high-speed rails. Um, 
I think Japan is actually a perfect example because when we think about infrastructure investments, and not just rails, but any infrastructure investment, we have to start thinking about it in terms of regions.、Uh, and we have to think about what this would look like for the Southeast, what this would look like for California, what this would look like for like Texas and surrounding, what this would look like for the Midwest and the Northeast, right? And I think once we kind of talk about what it looks like for specific regions, we can actually come to like reasonable solutions about how to, how to go about implementing this stuff. Um, so, for context, Japan's high speed rail was developed in fucking 1964. Okay? <laughs> I want to emphasize that for 50 years, they've decided to invest in high speed rail, and we've just been like, I don't know, sitting on our hands since then and being like, well, we should go to the moon. <laughs> um, and, and, like, that is not a lie. That's legitimately what we've done. Like, they have built like, complex rail systems for their citizens to get from one place to another. And we went to the moon and then shut down the entire program because we realized it wasn't really a worthwhile investment. Like, that is, that is what we've been doing versus what they've been doing.、Um, Japan is now at a point where they ferry 420,000 passengers a day on their high speed rail. Okay. The New York subway is in a league of its own. It takes a lot of people around and it completely crushes those numbers. Our high speed rail system, the only one that we have in this country, is Amtrak. Amtrak ferries 87,000 people a day. That's it. And that's nationwide. So when we're talking about scalability, like we don't even ferry a fourth of the number of people that Japan does、uh, with, the, with the rail system that we have here.、Uh, even going beyond that, since Japan started their system in 64, They haven't had a single fatality. We had 167 two years ago. So I don't even know like, where to start. Like, do I start with the ridiculous numbers that they have, the complexity of the system, or the fact that they don't get people killed when they put them on trains? And like, that seems like such like, a, a, a like, ridiculous like, argument to make that, like, of course, your trains should be safe. But like, ours really are not right now. And like, there's a whole country that's doing this the right way.、Um, Amtrak is technically considered high speed.、Uh, I think they top off at about 240 kilometers per hour. I'm not going to convert that to miles per hour. Hey, because I got I'm taking、you. a stand against that system. No, we're taking a stand against it. So it's 240 kilometers per hour. The slowest rail in Japan operates at 320 kilometers per hour. And they just broke the world record and have a train running at 600. So, like, I don't even want to hear about how we're kind of doing something that close to it. Like, no, we're not.、Um, Can I, I think, can I please just、yeah. tell everyone what 660 kilometers an hour is? Yeah, sure. That is 410 miles an hour. It's 600 kilometers. So knock off 30 miles or something like that. But like, still, that's an outrageous speed for like a train to be going in general.、Um, and so I, like, I think we really need to, to rethink why、uh, our system has not been successful, right? I think the second argument people make is that like people like their planes. Like they get on planes, they don't want to ride trains. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but like <laughs> they just like they're like not willing to make the change.、Um, Amtrak carries more people from Washington, D.C. to New York City than all of the other airlines combined. Okay, so I don't even know why we're talking about whether it's going to get used or whether it's a worthwhile investment. Like our rail system is shitty and people are still riding it. Like imagine if you improved it. Right? You could actually have a majority, I think, of the US population that's traveling between these cities、uh, get on the rail.、Um, and so I think that's like,、uh, something that like, we really need to rethink and, and address when we're talking about like, why it's important for us to kind of invest in high speed rails.、Um, 
The second to last thing, because I want to talk about the environmental impact at the end. The second to last thing I think people always talk about is like, well, how are we going to pay for it? Like, this is going to cost money. And I feel like that's everyone's go-to once they realize like this is the reasonable solution, but like they just want to be assholes about it. They bring up money, which is like a, not a bad argument. That's not what I'm saying. But like, it's always the last one that you bring up before you realize that like you're wrong. Um, Berkeley did a study uh, and they looked into this in California. And I think they estimated that it would cost about $40 billion in California. Um, you can in scale California that to alone. Each, in California alone. Yes. You can scale that to each region. Uh, I mean like nationwide, it would probably look a lot different, but I mentioned before, I, I'm trying to take a look at this region by region. Um, right now the DOD's budget is $686 billion. I, I don't even want to get into like how we should be taking money from that. But like, if we're talking about what investments we should be making versus which ones we shouldn't, uh, put high-speed rail in the should column and put DOD in the never column. Like, I feel like that's a pretty good place to start. Um, we bumped their budget $80 billion in the last fiscal year, which I don't care what it's for. It's useless. I just decided that it's useless. Um, there's like 590, or 597 of like a base a billion base budget. And then we have like 89 billion or 90 billion for overseas contingency operations. That's just code word for imperialism. I say we scrap that budget and we re that, that's overseas contingency is colonialism part two. We scrap that budget. Like I am fully in favor of doing that. Um, we have 1.6 billion going to the border wall. We have 782 million going to hire additional law enforcement agents, specifically ICE and Customs and Border Protection. We have another two and a half billion going to detain illegal immigrants or undocumented immigrants. Sorry, that's the language they use in their budget at the border. Like. This is ridiculous. We're spending more money on things that arguably aren't even a security risk. Forget like whether they're important or not. Like they don't even matter in terms of like what is actually issues facing the U.S. population. Uh, and so I find it kind of trivial that like the first thing we think about is like, well, how are we going to like pay for this? And I'm like, well, we found That's the money. That's every to pay issue, for though, isn't it? Like anytime. I know. Like Sorry, anytime you know Republicans want to give trillions of dollars in tax cuts or you know, go to war in 17 different countries, like, that's no problem. And then we're like, how about we give people health care? And they're like, but what about our kids and the debt? And how are we going to do this? I, that's my point. It's and like, long soliloquy. And it's like, there was an there was an article in Forbes about how this guy, he made a couple of arguments about why high, high speed rail like isn't feasible in the United States. And like the opening sentence of like his piece was that I'm in favor of high speed rail in the United States. And then the next sentence is, Imagine if we had taken the money we spent in Iraq and Afghanistan and instead invested in like proper infrastructure. He goes, in, can you yeah, imagine where we would be as a country? Like that's that's my point. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things, but he's like, I mean, he may, then proceeded to make arguments about why we may not have it. But like even someone like as cynical as him can realize that like we've made the wrong investments. Right. And, and it's not like we're unwilling. Um, and then like 20, 20th century, sorry, from like 1905 to like, I don't know, 1980 or something. We spent some like $200 billion in subsidies to the airline industry. Billion or million? Billion, billion. Uh, and I realize it's over like a long uh, uh, period of this? time. 20th it, it was, century, it's, like it's early like, Throughout the 20th century, yeah. Yeah, because didn't we, um, the, the airlines only got uh, privatized in like the 80s, right? Yeah. So well, the that, airlines are one of the we... biggest lobbying groups against high-speed rail. Yeah, no shit, because we would abolish the airlines. I'm not <laughs> we actually wouldn't abolish the airlines. We'd make the airlines not, like, the only option, right? Like, well, yeah, I'm in favor of abolishing them and building from the ground up. Hey, well, then maybe the airlines can't charge us for basic economy like anymore. Four or five-hour drive, your only option really is to fly. 
there's like that's just a, that the option of taking a train doesn't exist if you're from where we are atlanta like if you want to go outside of atlanta you're either getting ready for a road trip or you're flying there's no train i agree anymore. and like it, it you know what high speed rail significantly cuts down the time right so when we're talking about like driving versus like rail um i think tokyo cut like tokyo trips out going from tokyo cut their trips in half so like six hour trips we're now taking like three and a half hours or three hours and that's like a significant time reduction that we're not really i think thinking about when we're talking about high speed rail like not only is it like better for the environment but like it's convenient for people you have three hours now that you don't have to be driving right you can find other things to do with your time a lot of our trains are now equipped with wi-fi right that is productive time that you can have if you want or you can choose to do whatever else it is you do on your own. Like if you want to read, read. I don't really care what you do on your train. But like that is also like a, it's more efficient and it's a, it's a better use of people's time. Um, uh, trains take one half of the energy uh, or excuse me, one third of the energy of planes. So that's a huge um, like energy reduction that we're looking at. Um, a fifth of the energy of cars. Uh, so like that's another huge energy reduction that we're looking at. Like these are tangible improvements that we can make by investing in this. Um, the trip from Tokyo to Osaka, I can't tell you how long it is, um, but it produces only 16% of the carbon dioxide than if you took that same trip by car. Like that's, when we're talking about like personal responsibility versus like what we could be doing on like a massive scale, like, yes, I can stop using a straw tomorrow and buy an electric car, or you dumb fucks could invest in high-speed rail and we could all be saving <laughs> the environment. Like, this is so dumb. Like. I can't imagine people standing up on a stage and being like, stop eating beef. And I'm like, fucking invest in rail. Like, I don't, I don't understand why this is even a conversation. Like, I'm here giving you a scalable solution. And you're telling me like, oh, well, you know what? You ride a plane kind of frequently. So I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, uh, but you are uh, going and taking away our freedom to take planes. <laughs> yeah, okay, guys, I, I read this. <laughs> I need to pull the quote. But today in the office, I heard um, someone quote this author, and it was like essentially the irony of taking away – it goes something like taking away the freedom for you to be a fucking moron is what gets you more upset than me actually taking away your freedom. And like yeah. – Sorry, just had to share that. Thought it was relevant. I just, I can't, I just can't believe like, and I see, I read, I'll be honest with you guys, I read some of the arguments against it. Like, there was a Washington Post article where someone wrote this op-ed about like, why we won't have like high-speed rail. And like the, first of all, the top two arguments are always distance and cost. Like, oh, our cities are too far apart. And I'm like, you know what? DC's not that far from New York. You can start there. Like, Everything that you think of doesn't have to be but New York to LA. But also, that's the point of high-speed rail is to shorten the distance I, between two cities. Don't bring yeah, logic I agree. into this, Cena. I agree, but I'm just saying, like, there's a reason that I think we need to rethink, uh, like, how we're like uh, visualizing high-speed rail. And then I shit you not, like, one of the arguments this woman made, like, in her op-ed was that, like, our legal procedure in the United States won't allow for us to get the land that we need uh, to build high-speed rail. And it's not, I'm not, I don't have a problem with that argument because I get that like eminent domain is like a serious like government, like, uh, like strong arming, usually people who can't afford to like keep the land. Um, so I get that that's an issue. But her argument is that like no other country has like as strict like property rights as we do. Right? First of all, <laughs> fuck property rights. Okay. Respectfully, but fuck property rights. But like, 
that I mean, they just, didn't care about sending an oil pipeline down the middle of the yeah, native. Yeah. Like I've never heard, like someone's <laughs> like, you know what? There's oil under this land. And, and the first thing someone says is not, well, hell, someone owns that piece of land. Like no one has ever said that in the history of oil rigging, like ever. But like suddenly we're like, hey, like I want a high speed rail. And they're like, whoa, someone owns that land. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Donald Trump didn't care when he tore down a bunch of like people's homes and built up his like hotels. Like eminent domain clearly wasn't an issue then, but like suddenly it is now. Like I cannot believe that like you've got to dig so deep into the bag of like absurd arguments for you to make an argument against high speed rail. Anyway, that's my rant about high speed rail. <laughs> Nadine, you got anything or, or uh we ready for Schwinn's uh personal anecdote on the topic? Let's let Schwinn talk, and then I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll give a few thoughts at the end. All right, yeah. So when I was in D.C., this was actually something that came across uh, our office because uh, yearly they have the uh, authorization to sort of re-up the highway fund to maintain the highways and bridges and all that, blah, blah, blah. So I brought up the same thing. which was like, why don't we just fa- take this money because it's, it's a sizable amount of money. I don't, it's, clear, it's not billions, but it's, it's enough where, you know, you could start to make some – Headway on, you know, if you want to make MARTA better, if you want to imbe- help uh, the, the metro in D.C. or whatever, because the metro is just terrible there. You know, it's, it's, it's things to, to just make commute better for people. And the main thing I heard from uh, my office was, especially in the House, the, the, the counties that are further away from the urban areas tend to just automatically vote against it. doesn't matter which party line they're on. Uh, because they know that they're not going to see any benefits. Um, but if they pass a highway bill, they can earmark some of the funds that they're going to get and kind of use them for what they want. And so because of that, and you know the lobbyist pressure and all those things, they're constantly pushing to passing a highway bill and never putting any money towards public transportation, which is, I guess, one of the saddest things that we could do as a government when you know we could be, A, saving the environment, be making travel easier and cheaper. Uh, but instead, we're just building roads constantly. I'm sorry, Ashton, that was a little too logical for me. Could you break it down into some absurd and irrational arguments so that way I can follow along? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, they want to waste your money. So uh. if, they, if they try to build high-speed rail, um, it's too logical for them, and they can't spend that money for themselves. So instead, they pass this highway bill so they can just spend it on whatever they want. Suddenly, uh, I'm following basically, along. They basically get a blank check, so uh, or they get a check with a certain amount of money, and this, uh, the county can just spend it the way they want to. So, I mean, all jokes aside, I, I get it that there is a serious disconnect, not a disconnect, but like a disadvantage when we invest in high-speed rail about how this serves non-urban communities and what we're thinking about in terms of how we're connecting like rural communities or even ones that are just like far from like like large cities and like how we're connecting them to like this high-speed rail network. And I get that that's a serious issue. Um, and it's one that, like, right off the bat, I don't know that I necessarily have a solution for. Other than no, to, like, I, that, might more rail. that might be no, the no, only and, negative. That might be the only negative. I get it that, like, we, like, I guess we would need to build more rail, right? But my issue is that, like, today, right, in 2019, you can get from Washington, D.C. to New York, like, on a plane, right? My argument is that tomorrow you should be able to get from Washington, D.C. to New York City on a train instead, right? You Whatever – what, <laughs> A faster train maybe i've done it <laughs> whatever whatever communities are currently excluded from like travel patterns 
like or what will be excluded from travel patterns by high speed rail are already excluded. So we need to rethink a solution for those communities. This isn't like a, oh, if we change the existing method of travel, we're marginalizing them. You've already if you don't change anything, they're marginalized. If you change something, they're marginalized. You're not making a difference. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Like you're yeah, not yeah. making an impact by by investing in a new form of transportation. We have to have a separate conversation about if you live an hour and a half away from New York, not close to another major city, what is our transportation like method look like now? And that's a separate conversation that needs to happen. That doesn't have an impact on whether right now we're wasting like, you know, 100 carbon units or whatever you want to call it from like DC to New York, but we could be wasting 15 instead. Let's not forget the other factor that goes into public transportation. And I think uh, it was on like one of the more recent episodes of uh, the Patriot Act that I saw this, but it should be free. uh, Public, I mean, besides that is public transportation is one of the biggest uh, cost return or the return on investment ratios for people who are in uh, tougher financial situations. They can, you know, get a job and get to their jobs easier and be able to commute. And that's not by accident that we're limiting that because it's people of color that are affected the most and usually in the poor part of cities. So, I mean, you don't even have to look at the rural versus urban. You can just look within our cities to find sort of the more poverty stricken areas versus the more affluent areas. And you can see their access to uh, public transportation in some cases. And it's like, yeah, I don't, a whole separate yeah. conversation is going to be had about how we're arresting people for riding the subway illegally. Okay, I'm let's, not even. So yeah, let's, I, let's say that. Yeah, so Nadine, I, you've been quiet. Hit, hit us with yeah, your thoughts. So, so on all, also now we're on. This is like kind of our fourth area we've been talking about, and um, I guess one point like we haven't really gotten to that I want to talk about just a little bit um, is, and this is sort of uh, zooming out a little bit and kind of looking at. What what Amon's talking about with high speed rail, Cena, what you were talking about with cars, um, and that is like the influence that money has in our politics and how that affects climate change and makes making progress on all these issues so much harder. Like, so, you know, for any issue we talk about, if we're talking about cars, um, Cena, you talked about how you know these car companies are making big investments in electric cars. Uh, they also you know, to a certain extent have been like, like Amon had was saying that the progress we made on that has been slow and that they didn't just develop the ability to make these investments yesterday. These have been mm-hmm. massive companies forever. And we've known about climate change for a long time. They're just making these investments. Now, when we talk about um, investing in renewable energy sources, the biggest opponents of that are are pouring millions, if not billions of dollars into our political system all the time mm-hmm. to fight against efforts to invest in renewable energy sources. Air, airlines don't want us to invest in high-speed rails. So I think looking forward, not just um, for this next election, but over the next 10, 20, 30 years of fighting climate, I really think um, when we talk about what to hold our elected officials responsible for, and that is the influence um, that money has on the policies that are getting pushed, because that's kind of like the first roadblock to passing any of these pieces of legislation, imposing any of these regulations that we're talking about, is decreasing the influence that these giant corporations have on the process. Because like the way it stands, we have, first of all, one out of our two 
political parties is basically like in the tank for fossil fuel companies. So that's not ideal. <laughs> and then you <laughs> oh, it's not ideal. About, no, I don't think so. And then um, you know you see things like that. What happened at on CNN last night and all these conversations about straws and cheeseburgers and light bulbs and the mainstream media is also highly influenced by advertisers and money and they're not doing us any favors either. So um, I guess all of these issues are important. I'd say climate change is one of the most important issues we have. Obviously, you know, we all think fighting income inequality is one of the most important issues. Have. This is probably a set good separate uh, top podcast for us just to have on the influence of money in politics, but that that's something that I think that gets lost. And the reason why some candidates are more appealing to others is that, you know, if if you've got a candidate up there talking about how they believe in climate change and that we should fight it, but they're also courting, you know, billionaires for political donations. <laughs> Joe Biden. Words, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That those words, even someone like Kamala Harris, who gets a lot of big money from California, where there's Still today, like a lot of oil like that's produced in California. Um, and I'm not, I don't, I can't tell you off the top of my head who she takes money from or who she doesn't. But, um, you know, that's that the, it's not, it needs to be mentioned anytime we're talking about issues of climate that there's an entire uh, corporate complex fighting, fighting progress on this issue every day. And I, and I think that's a great way to round off the topic, Nadim. And I, and I think what really has been fun and, and interesting about this conversation, also slightly depressing, but that's any topic we ever talk about, um, is just like the nuances. And I think there is some there's some reassurance in a way as to the multitude of ways we can attack climate change from an industry perspective, from a regulatory perspective. Um, I think it just is all upon us to hold our politicians accountable and to hold the companies accountable. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll start to see a greater movement build out of this and treat it like the number one issue that it should be. Um, shout out Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders for doing it as such. Um, but I think it, it, it just, it makes for good conversation. It's important that we continue to have these discussions and, hopefully progress the thinking and, and the greater movement on the direction we need to head. Now, that being said, this brings us into our final uh, segment, which is called Around the Table. Um, and this segment has started off from the idea of how everything in our world is negative. Uh, this podcast may not help. Hopefully it helps. Maybe it won't. Um, the more Amon talks, the less it probably helps. I'm just Listen. kidding, I'm on. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I just want to ask everyone, what is one thing we have read, heard, listened to, experienced this week that has stuck with us? It can be positive. It doesn't have to be positive. Um, and full, full transparency, uh, we got this from our friends over at The Atlantic. So shout out to The Atlantic and their podcast there. Um, don't, don't come and sue us, but, uh, but yeah, who wants to take it first? Yeah, I can start. Um, so the piece that I, I thought was, uh, the best one, at least to kick off here today, uh, was, um, there was a, a case that was, um, just one, 
um, by about two dozen Muslim U.S. citizens um, in a federal court on Wednesday, I think. Um, and they actually sued the FBI and other federal agencies over the use of a terrorist watch list. Um, and they won. And the court ruled that it was unconstitutional um, and that it was uh, not legal for a lot of these agencies to be maintaining this kind of terrorism watch list or whatever watch list they really want to call it. Um, and so they are working to actually dismantle that, which is a huge win for um, predominantly Muslim Americans, but um, also all Americans who are having their constitutional rights uh, violated. Love that. Good news for the people on this podcast. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no fly so. Yeah, yeah. If if, if uh, the audience did not pick up on where our name came from, it's because we're all on a watch. No, I'm totally kidding. We're not all on a watch list. We are not. At least we don't uh, think we so. Sure. Yeah. To make, Amon to make yeah, to make Tommy Laird and the rest of Fox News even more mad, uh, the case was won by the Council of American Islamic Relations. So, shout out Care. Which they claim is being funded by the Muslim Brotherhood, but that's a separate topic. Does this mean we should change our podcast name? To the No, we're not changing the name. You okay. We'll change it from the no fly list to the hey, you're totally okay to fly list. Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, Cena, don't quit your day job. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. So so my I, I kinda wanted to uh just bring a piece of news into this. It's it's not it's not positive per se, but Lord. The curious case of Brexit has continued <laughs> over the last few it's weeks. It's been wild, um, man. It's been wild. So for anyone who hasn't been paying attention, our boy Boris Johnson uh, has been having man. a rough go of it as of late. <laughs> he got a dog. Um, Great. Good for him. Ago, he basically said a few weeks ago that October 31st, um, deal or no deal, he wants to Brexit. He wants to pull out of the EU. And, you know, whether we, they've negotiated a deal or not, uh, Parliament then steps in and says, hey, you know, we don't think that's the best idea. Obviously, in England, Parliament elects their prime minister um, based on who has the majority. So long story short, he ended up getting enough defections on a vote uh, related to Brexit that he did not was not able to get a majority um, the prime minister becomes prime minister because there is a leader of the majority in England. So if you can't get, you know, a majority of people on your side in a vote, then you're a fairly weak prime minister at that point. He then ta has talked about suspending parliament, which they have the power to do. It's mainly included there for emergencies, but kind of like Trump with the border wall. He's like, hey, if this is what it takes to get to my political ends, I'll do it. Now that there's such little confidence in him and that the situation in Parliament is so bad, they are trying to potentially call for another general election, which would be their third one in five years, which, you know, we have one every four years. So you can imagine how kind of crazy that is that they're about to be on number three if the House of Commons votes to that effect. Long story short, basically no, no one has any idea what's going to happen. Europe is preparing that Britain is going to pull out without a deal. And the whole thing is just a massive shit show. And if this happens where uh, the UK pulls out of the EU without a deal on Brexit, then that's going to be a world market event. You know, we've talked um, between us about a quote unquote impending recession and global economic downturn. Um, a no deal Brexit could absolutely be something that, um, takes us closer to that recession and it's definitely something to watch for 
and not even the people in the British government really knows what it's going to happen. So, yeah, good news. Ashlyn, a uh, slightly more uplifting topic from you, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I, don't, I don't know if it's uplifting, but it's just something funny. Um, if you end up getting a chance, I highly recommend you all go on to Twitter and look up uh, the number five ranked men's tennis player in the world, Daniil Medvedev. And he's currently, I think, playing in the semifinals for the U.S. Open. And his story is a little funny. Um, he was playing a match the other day, and he was being a jerk to his opponent. And overall, just being an, an asshole. Uh, and so when he ended up winning the match, people just kept booing him incessantly. And he went out, and the victory speech that he gave during his, uh, his interview sounded like something that someone who would win would say. He was thanking all the fans for giving him energy, and that only made them boo louder. And he's like, keep booing, and he was egging them on. And it was just something really funny to see because you're like, what is this guy doing? And then he did it again the next match. And this time the boos were mixed in with cheers. And then when he got to the quarters and he did the same thing again. And he was thanking the people. But this time they were cheering him instead. And I just feel like that's the most New York thing that we can do. (laughs) Is take a a jerk and then sort of be like, wow, he's actually one of us. And start supporting him for it. It's like, wow, you, you were a jerk before. But I guess that just means you're more like me. Um, I like you more because of it. It's it's just something, it's just funny to see how we adopt these sort of figures and start supporting them all of a sudden. So love that. Love that. Can I just interject real quick and say that Amon's headphones have died and he can't talk right now. So this is like a dream come true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Uh, Aman Sharanya is the liberal Ben Shapiro. Imagine, imagine if he had just charged his AirPods. Yo, I know. And I know. Yeah, or, we talk about how he rails against big corporations and the influence of us, and then he's like fucking neutered when his AirPods die. Yo, but if he had the new Power Beats Pro with 10 hours of battery life, you wouldn't have to worry about charging. Beats, please send us a sponsor. So, We'd yeah, Beats, yeah, we would love a sponsorship. Um, yeah, we... Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 Dima, I want to hear the I want to hear the second part of our sponsorship appeal. No, no, we can't. We're not going to get corporate sponsorships with Amon on this podcast. It's just not a thing. Yeah, That's but, true. like, we can be, like, Beats, block out the noise from republicans you know like that's our tag and then amon will be like we should abolish beats because poor people can't afford (laughs) (laughs) oh man um anyways i hope he's we love you amon we we do love you uh my around the table topic is i just want to thank julio jones for not being antonio brown and i just would like to thank the uh greatest wide receiver in the league for being a full-on team player while also working behind the scenes to try to get his worth. And I respect that. And I What if he doesn't that. play this Sunday? You know what? We'll cross that bridge when we get there. Fair point. But for the time being, and even if he doesn't play on Sunday, I think he will. I still think he will. But if he doesn't play on Sunday, I still respect how he's gone about it. And I can't hate the man. I can't hate the man for trying to get his worth, especially he attended all training camp, went through preseason, did not hold out because of a helmet issue. Did not hold out because he got cryotherapy burns on his feet. Did not. Didn't bleach his mustache. Yeah. Didn't bleach his mustache. Didn't uh, fight the GM and threaten to punch him in the face. So on and so forth. 
Um, so yeah, I just I just want to thank Julio Jones for being a fantastic person. That's all. Okay, this has been it's been great. That's all, yeah. folks. Yeah. So uh, everyone, thank you so much for joining the first non-official but official official podcast of No Fly List. If you guys um, hear this, you'll you'll be the first ones to listen to this. So yeah, thank we've you. we've gone through multiple iterations of this podcast, technical difficulties, uh, us just also sucking. We may have sucked this time around. Who knows? Uh, so all seven of you that are going to listen to this, thank you. And and I and by all seven, he means Rohill seven times with seven different accounts. Um, we thoroughly appreciate the support and any feedback that you may have. Feel free to reach out to us. Uh, but until next week. I am Sina Iranica, joined by Aman Charania, a.k.a. the liberal Ben Shapiro, uh, Nadim Jetta, and Ashwin Ragde, and we are no fly Thank you so much for listening.